All right. Thanks, church. Uh, uh, for those online, thanks for joining us. Uh, and for those here in the room, glad you're here. We're going to be opening up our Bibles. We do that every Sunday. Uh, we want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, and the reason is, is we really want for you, we want to give back to you this book of Revelation that, that is the uh, last book in your Bibles, uh, opening up to chapter 12. If you're really concerned that we've skipped a few chapters, don't be. We are, we're not moving in a linear uh, format because the book doesn't read in a linear format. So we will be going back and covering some of the things that we've missed. Uh, but as I've blabbed on about that, hopefully it's given you time to open up to chapter 12. I'm going to be reading the entirety of the chapter. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and, the head, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you with great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who is was given two wings with, of the great eagle so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and a half time. The serpent poured water out like a river out of its mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood at the sand of the sea. Um, it's chapters like this one that prompt very polar uh, opposite responses. Some of you read this uh, apocalyptic literature and you love it. You're like, give me more of that. I wish our whole Bible was written like that. It, it excites you. And some of you are like, no, that's confusing and scary. And let's just avoid it altogether. And, and what we want to do this morning is not only just explain what's taking place, but give it back to you as a word of encouragement. You, you see, it's helpful to understand 
that, that what is given in this, written to an audience, if you are, are unaware of that or if you've forgotten, because we're moving certainly and, and we're deep into the apocalyptic literature that you know, kind of overtakes the book of Revelation, this is written to an audience, primarily to John, who is receiving this vision, caught up in the spirit, seeing what is kind of unveiled as the curtain is torn back, seeing reality as it ultimately is, and to an audience of an original recipient of this letter to the early, uh, kind of later first century church, that they would receive it and be encouraged, and then by extension to us, that, that what's being revealed is for our understanding and benefit. And, and, and I'd, I'd say this, um, it's to catch us up of what's taking place in this story and where we are in this story. We were used to that in storytelling, but not in this way. We're used to that in a linear fas- fashion. That's Star Wars. Star Wars is where you see the, the, the movie starts, hit, the, hit the, the, uh, the theme song, and then the script goes slowly up the screen, and you read it in yellow font as to understand where we are in the trilogy, or the second trilogy, or the third trilogy, and Lord willing, the fourth because we, we read it, we understand, okay, now I know where I am in the story. Or narration, we're very familiar with that. Winnie the Pooh, deep in the Hundred Acre Wood. Now I know where I am in the story. If a picture paints a thousand words, it's worth a thousand words, then the author, the one speaking this vision, is dialed deep into that, and that's why as followers of Jesus, we can get so excited and we can come back to these imagery with greater hope because it's saying many complementary things all at once. And so we'll break down the text this way, um, understanding that it's given a backdrop, and this is what we spoke to last week, that this is unveiling reality as it ultimately is. This is true, real reality. Waking us up out of our slumber of what we see in real life or our life to understand that there's something behind all these things that we are attuned to in our spirit but not seeing with our eyes and that we receive that in the book of Revelation to be our hope and encouragement. And we would break up the text this way, chapter, sorry, verse 1 to 6, the Christmas story. If you don't see it, I'll explain in a moment. And then verse 7 uh, to the end of the chapter of where we are today and what that means for us. So verse 1 to 6, and, and you need to know, some of you know this, I've been excited to preach in the Christmas season this chapter for years. I've been saying to friends, we, we, we got to do this. We're going to be stepping into the season of Advent, which is a season of anticipation, where we remember Jesus is coming, and we get excited, we sing carols, we, we get jazzed about this idea that we all love Christmas, but this is the Christmas story. You didn't know there was a dragon in it, did you? What we see here, and again, um, apocalyptic literature is supposed to be pictorial in its understanding, giving deeper meaning so that it can cover many things at once. And what we see is this. We we see God's movement and trajectory throughout the biblical narrative uh, and captured in this person, the woman. This is Mary, but more than Mary, this this is the people of God. This is the, the tribes of Israel. We see that as the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. That if you're a good student of your Bible, this should hearken you back to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph has a vision of the sun, moon, and 11 stars, him being the 12th, as a picture of God's family. 
So, so this is God's workmanship in, in humanity, the people of Israel, his people, depicted in one person, the woman, which is also kind of a picture of Mary as she gives birth. And moreover, the focus is on the male child. We, we see Jesus, who is ruler over all nations, iron scepter in his hand. Think shepherd's crook. The staff of one who takes care and is in charge of his people, but iron, strong, powerful. This is not a rulership or an authority that will be broken. Everything has moved up to this moment in the story. But as, as heaven and earth intersect, as Jesus steps into the narrative, there is a dragon waiting. And if you are concerned that we're going to misinterpret that, go to chapter, or verse 9. Gives us no ability to misrepresent this. It says, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the accuser. This is meant to, and I hope it does, bring us back, as it says, that ancient serpent, that snake. Bring us back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent that appears to man and woman in the garden and sparks or is culpable to sparking the rebellion that starts this problem that is the problem throughout the biblical narrative, human history, and our story as well. You see, what's happening in this text is it mirrors what is taking place in the earliest pages of our Bible and giving them newer understanding and meaning that is supported by the narrative of Scripture. That when our human rebellion take, took place, there, it was mirrored by, and what also took place was a rebellion in the heavens. As, as, as Satan, the accuser, that ancient serpent, also rebelled against creator God. And, and Satan, I have to say this for clarity because there's just too much craziness out there. He is not equal to in power and authority to God. He is not the yin to his yang. He is a created being, a fallen angel, uh, the ringleader of one third. That is the tail sweeping out a third of the stars of the sky. It's given in more plain context uh, in verses 7 onwards as we see that he is thrown down. Now, you have to love that. Here's why you have to love that. How many, just go back briefly, look at the text. How many times does it say thrown down? A lot. There's no emphasis of he got back up. He fought back well. It was, no, this is a picture of King Jesus kicking him down the stairs. Down and down and down he goes. Actually, um, Daryl Johnson, whose commentary we've been using in this series, and if you're a student of the Greek, you'll understand the most accurate translation is he got bounced. King Jesus bounced him out of heaven. This is not your territory anymore. You are not welcome here anymore. And he is thrown down. He is thrown out. What we see as the problem that is birthed in the early pages of the biblical story and that is going to be remedied in the person and the work of King Jesus is this. Heaven and earth have been separate, separate, separated, that's the word I'm looking for, fractured through our rebellion in a rebellion that's mirrored not just in the seen but the unseen realm. That, that this was the initial design that God had for us and his creation that we would as the first representatives of humanity got to walk in the cool of the garden with their creator. 
by in an act that I appreciate in, in the biblical narrative. It's so simple, but an act of ultimate rebellion saying, not your design, but a design of my own. I'm reaching out to take life as I want it. He said, in his justice and mercy, then you cannot be here, but I will clothe you in your exit. What enters in the fracturing of heaven and earth, right relationship with God and humanity is this entrance into our hearts of shame. And we see right from the beginning, this problem needs to be covered, needs to be dealt with, and it requires death to do so. God, in a way that acts as a benchmark, a way of foreshadowing what is needing to take place, clothes them in the skin of animals, moving forward into the Old Testament sacrificial system that you need to be covered through the death of something else that ultimately points to the work and the person of Jesus that we are covered in our shame once and for all, fully, freely, and forever forgiven when we are received by the blood of the Lamb who clothes us and robes us in his righteousness. This is the work that's taking place. This is the entrance into the story. And what's so uh, important for us to understand in the backdrop of human existence is this. There's a war and the aftershocks of a war that is in our existence. You see, I, I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, Jesus is coming. Advent excites good and evil alike. We, we understand that in the Christmas story. Angels herald his coming. They celebrate. This is the one who's come to fulfill the house of Jacob. The one who has come as the son of King David. The one who's uh, capital K king of all kings and his kingdom will have no end. That's Jesus. And yet we also see uh, the enemy, the ancient serpent, is excited in the same way like a snake coiled to strike. The infinite one has become vulnerable. And, and, and I don't know, this is Aaron asserting his thoughts, but, but I, I, I wonder if the evil one said, this is my chance. He's here and he's in flesh. You, you, I can't believe it. This is the picture. It says, as a dragon was ready to devour, this is the snake ready and coiled to crush or, or to devour ready to strike. Now, now you have to appreciate this. Um, this is not outside of God's plan or his understanding. In fact, he's set all human trajectory in this way, understanding it, dare I say, uh, knowing where it was going when, he, when the problem entered into our existence and our existence was shaped by the problem of our rebellion. He said this in, speaking to the ancient serpent, speaking to Satan in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, if I were translating, I would say capital H, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I wish the ESV translated bruise differently. Actually, if you want to impress your friends, the Hebrew word is shuf. Uh, what that means is to overcome completely. It's a picture of crushing grapes in your hands. You could say to crush so Aaron's translation would go like this. You'll nip his heel, but in so doing, he'll stomp your head in. Jesus has come. This, this is Christmas. Jesus has come as warrior, king, dragon killer, serpent stomper. Like, that's why you got to love this text. 
If you don't see it, I'm inviting you to see it that way, that, that this is the fulfillment of what was promised in Genesis chapter 3, that, yeah, you're, you're going to strike him, and it's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to stomp your head in. This, this is our hope. This is the picture. Now, uh, with that in mind, the backdrop of the battle in the unseen and seen realms, we need to know this church, and this is where my heart beats for you in this message. We're in a battle. Like, do not mistake that we're in a playground when we're in a battleground. We, we so want to just run and frolic and have a good time in life, and yet that is not the picture we're given in Revelation 12, and, and if you're wondering, is it perhaps in a very confusing uh, area of the Bible, apocalyptic literature, that perhaps the pastor's uh, laying something that he wants to see into the text? No, it, the scripture backs us up, and I'll prove it. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 17 to 20, I invite you to go there. It says this, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples after he sent them in power to share about him and, his, and the work that he has started. In verse 17, it says this, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. A couple of observations. Uh, first off, Jesus, did you not see that if you've read the Gospels before, the first four books of your New Testament? He's like, I saw Satan fall. Now, you can read that one of two ways. I think you're safe to do so. Either he's speaking past tense, this has happened, or he's speaking um, as what is about to take place in the ministry that he has begun, as if he's rolling up his sleeves like, oh yeah, he's going down. But like lightning, that's a picture of like, he's thrown down hard. He's not getting back up. There, there is no fight back. You know, I, I was thinking about this actually in preaching the first sermon, so second ser- uh, sermon, better message, um, it was these are really juxtaposed images, aren't they? Fearsome seven-headed dragon, ten horns. That, that's an image of power. So think seven complete, you know, heads and, and, and crowns. That's an idea of a complete authority, lots of power, borrowed mind you. And nothing kind of stands as a, as a, you know, a counter force. And yet he's thrown down. King Jesus is like, I don't need to, you know, create white knight imagery. You, you are no match to me. I throw you down. In that picture, we, we see Jesus, he's not just speaking to that of, of his, himself. We actually see that when he enters the scene, and, and we have to deal with this. I think sometimes with Sunday school teaching, we kind of hide it because it freaks out our kids. Jesus arrives on the scene, and we see that heaven and earth is intersecting in his ministry where he says, my kingdom has come. And we see that in that place, darkness squeaks out of the corners, and we see that, that he has interactions with demonic forces. These are fallen angels who are in rebellion towards him. And they say things like, have you come early? Are you, are you going to throw us down before our appointed time, knowing that their time is short, knowing that it's borrowed time, knowing that they have no opposition to him? You're King Jesus. He doesn't have to flex. They know who he is. And, and in that picture, he's, he speaks to his disciples who are pretty pumped. I mean, this is really weird for us as Westerners. 
Like how, how many of you, if you experience this, you'd be like, what? That just happened. Even the demons. Like, I, I'm, like we don't teach that class. Maybe we should. They're subject, and he's going, hey, guys, you will tread on serpents and scorpions all over all things, power over the enemy. Now, this is, again, Aaron speaking into this, but I think it's okay. He, he's saying, do you not realize that in me, as my spirit dwells in you, you're serpent stompers as well? Like, like don't get me wrong. This is, this is a dangerous foe. One who's been thrown down, kicked down the stairs, has nothing less to lose, and will in so doing be incredibly harmful to God's people. But, but he's lost. I mean, that, that is an assured victory for us and loss for him. And for us, we, we step into that victory as we honor, live for, and, and praise our King Jesus. That we get to be serpent stompers with him. We get to uh, reign in this way. But, but here's the thing. I love how Jesus does this. But, but don't get excited about that. Get excited that your names are written in heaven. In, in other words, this, we expect justice, don't we? The, the rebellious created things in the seen and unseen realms will eventually be put down. We kind of understand that. But be excited about his mercy. That your names are written in heaven. That, that he has come not just to throw down an ancient foe, but also to restore and reclaim people unto himself. And that's us. You see, in this backdrop to the story, we see that the serpent is a sore loser. Couldn't take out the child. So he turns on the woman, and in so doing, all of her offspring. This is a picture of, and so if Mary, and more than Mary, the people of God are depicted in the woman, who are her offspring? Well, that's the church. That's us. We are, this is our existence. We are in, in a, a time, in a period where, where the dragon is ferociously pursuing those who bear the image of God, those who have placed their hope in him. That's his enemy, and he'll do anything he can to take them out. Uh, think of it like this. This is a trope that exists in many stories, but where the antagonist has been or is about to be thrown down, and they have no way to, you know, re- Take, take back any kind of action against the protagonist, they'll bring down the one they love. It's that picture of just before falling off the cliff, reaching for one last act of vengeance, grabbing the bride of the hero to fall down to their death together. I mean, you've seen that in stories. You've seen that in movies. You understand that that's the picture. I can't hurt the king. I can't fight Jesus, but I'll take out his bride if I can that's the reality of what's being depicted here. But here's the thing. We're given ability to fight. Luke 10, verse 11, it says, By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and not loving their lives unto death. We're going to explain that in a moment. But, but here's how the dragon fights. It introduces him as the accuser, the deceiver of the world, the one who accuses them day and night. That, that Daryl Johnson and his book, by the way, which we're using for much of this series, 
um, Discipleship on the Edge. I commend it to you. I'd invite you to read it and encourage you to, to look into it, especially if you're new to the book of Revelation. He depicts the water that flows from the dragon's mouth as the accusations, the deceit, the threats, and the lies that threaten to drown God's people. It's the antithesis to the rivers of life that flow from God's spirit that are meant to nourish us. The words, the threats, the accusations, the lies that come from the dragon are meant to destroy us and take us apart. Now, here's how we fight. Here's where we stand. It says, by the blood of the lamb, their testimony, and not loving their lives unto death. Um, I'm quoting Matt Chandler, but I think this one's up for grabs because this is where uh, many would say the same thing and theology and psychology would actually intersect. But we know this to be true of our own hearts, that we are all affected, afflicted by a word or a wound that has shaped who we are. And if you're like, nope, not me, well, just wait a bit. It'll, and look a little deeper. It's there. Something that somebody has said. A word that you have received, and it doesn't mean you have a bad family. It doesn't mean that somebody intentionally did that, but it might have been the wrong place, wrong time. Something that you received or sensitivity in your heart, that a word or a wound has afflicted you, and you have moved forward, and that has shaped the kind of person you want to be. You've either succumbed to it, that I'll prove that wrong, or that you've succumbed to it in such a way that you've, you've assumed it's right, and it's taken you out of the fight. How many people do you know, speaking of the church, they're not in the fight because they're believing a lie? I mean, I think this, this is t-ball for our culture. How, how many of us look around at, at, at the church and we go, man, we're just not in the fight because we are believing things that, that are keeping us out of the battle. Saying things like, you know what, God really want, wouldn't have that for me. Or the God that I understand really wouldn't say that. Or, or the God that I picture, and, and we're creating a God in our understanding, in our image, who isn't God at all. God who, and this is Keller, doesn't challenge you, doesn't speak into your life and ask it to be radically reoriented and ordered around him, isn't God at all. Because you can't have a relationship with a God like that. That's just you propping yourself up. The God of the Bible, as we get to know and combat lies with truth, God's word is truth. Jesus, capital T, is truth. Understanding his gospel and getting it into your guts is how we fight. How we, we start combating the lies. And, and, and here's where, my, this is my indictment of the North American church. We have created professional Christians in leadership and told the church, that is the members of the body of Christ, those who, would, who are actually meant to be soldiers in the fight, uh, don't worry. Just come Sundays. We got really comfy seats. You know, I'll try to be on time. And, and you know what? Your kids are going to have a great time. And we're going to send you out encouraged with a smile on your face. And if, if you don't like that, give us feedback because we want to get better. That's what we've created. And, and, and you are, we're allowing you, if that, that is what you're hearing and that is what we're propagating, you are, we're allowing you to die with an eased conscience and smile on your face when we should be saying, no, we want you to be in the fight. Like, this is me today going, I, it's gotten into my guts. I wanted to get into yours. Just, we want you to wake up. We want you to fight. This is um, the, the word that I'm hearing. I can't even find a primary source. Scholars, commentators, missionaries, pastors around the world are saying the unanimous and same thing of the church in Canada and the U.S., that the Western church has fallen asleep as if lulled asleep by some kind of demonic lullaby. 
going, it's everybody else's problem. We'll be okay. You know, just wait till COVID's over. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get our, our way of doing things back. Actually, I, I, do you know how many, and a little bit of my, my personality showing here or my, my, my personal views, do you know how many pastors I've heard who are like, this is great. I, I love that people are watching in their pajamas and, and I, don't, I never have to meet them. I don't have to visit them for coffees. I don't have to hear their problems. That is not the church. But I can understand how a heart goes that way. And, and for our friends online, we're encouraging a, a work of getting into the battle, which means getting into relationship with people, not just in the body, but outside as well. This is not an encouragement for us to have a holy huddle. This is us to be awakened and aware of the lies that have gotten deep into our hearts. You see, uh, deceit is a misrepresentation of truth. And I think this is a time where, where it's very easy for us to, 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 to be jaded and, and, and responsive to that, where we're kind of questioning what is true and what isn't. But, but here's my concern. Um, my generation and the generation behind me, uh, we, we are discipled more by social media. media and, and, and thank goodness, I'm too old, but for the younger generation, TikTok, 30-second sound bites by people who are building themselves up as experts, speaking into the things that are echo chambers and confirmation bias of what they want to hear, and not based on truth or men and women who are growing deeply in a relationship with Christ. And yet we're going, see... It's, it's, this is it. This is deceit. It's a misrepresentation. It's, it's, you know, we're going to give you just enough. We're going to spin it. If you ever hear somebody say, how are we going to spin that? You know what they're saying? Let's lie. The evil one is the king of spin. See, he wants to deceive us into a place of, oh, we're doing okay. We're doing just fine. We're having great impact. Or he wants to accuse. Yeah, much the same, accusation works this way. Accusation can actually be truthful. Accusation's meant to take you out of the fight. Accusation's made, made to make you feel disqualified. It might be saying, you're a cheater. You're a liar. I know your heart. You're a hypocrite. I, I, I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know the friends you hang with. And this is where... Verse 11 is so powerful. It says, we overcome the lies, deceit, and accusation of the evil one in this way by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's the gospel. The way you stand against accusation, which rings true, is you're right. But I am fully, freely, and forever forgiven in Christ. I am covered in his blood. I am robed in his righteousness. Whatever you throw at me doesn't stick. Why? Because fully acquitted. You can actually stand in the face of the accuser and be like, you missed a couple things. I'm way worse than that. But because of Christ and the fact that he has given me a new life, he didn't just come to deal justly, but mercifully for those who would turn away, forsake the life that they built in rebellion to him, and say, I want your kingdom, Jesus, and you to be my king. We're fully acquitted, freely, fully, and forever forgiven in him. It's a beautiful picture of how we battle. You see, that, that, that's, that's truth, and truth needs to, actually, it, it does set free, but it can sting. And, and here's where this is so commonplace in our understanding, and yet we lose it. My, my girls, 
I, I tell them things that they don't want to hear because they are true to help them grow, mature, develop, and become safe and hopefully functional adults. To, to spin, to deceive, and to accuse it is actually to harm. And we do that to ourselves really well. The evil one uses that as a primary source. He wants us to drown in these things. He wants the church to be completely immobilized. And church, I'm saying this, I want us to wake up. I, I want us to get into our guts so that we want to fight and that we want to f- fight for others as well. I, I would love to, to pastor a small but rowdy little church that causes a lot of trouble in dark places. And, and here's the last thing. It's they love their lives, not even unto death. Now, that, that's going to ring true very differently to the original audience who, if you forgot in our first week, this letter was received by the first century church in a time where the Romans were throwing them to lions for sport, ripping them apart by wild horses, or dipping them in pitch and lighting them up to illuminate their gardens. This was a time where it was very real that you could die for your faith in Jesus, and the audacity of the gospel was like, that's worth it. And, and this is written, or sorry, this is received very differently by the church that is persecuted around the world, where that, that is still a reality today. But for us, we kind of go, I don't know if I want to tell my coworkers I'm a Christian. I might, I might look embarrassed around my neighbors. Park a, a Mission Hill trailer in your driveway and then talk to your neighbors and see how that goes. Most of my neighbors thought I stole it. You can ask my wife. They're like, you don't look like a pastor. That must be stolen. I'm like, I look more like a thief than a pastor. I don't know if I'm happy or not with that. But I'm going to launch into this conversation knowing that it might cost me friendships with my neighbors. It might, it might make me that weird guy on the block. And you know what? That's okay. Love not our life unto death. I'm going to pick on us evenly so that I can pick on us rightly, but I'll say this. This is probably to those perhaps watching on the screen or to those who are friends of ours. We really love our lives right now, don't we? So much so that we, we, many of us have taken the opportunity to, to huddle in homes, stay away from friends, out of a deep concern for our physical bodies and health. Why? Because we love our lives a lot. Now, to pick on us equally so that that you know I'm not trying to pick a side. Uh, there are those who love to throw off our masks and frolic down the streets. And we love our lives to the point where we just have no compassion or understanding to those who are inconveniencing us because they won't show up. We love our lives too much. I want to say this as an equal way of saying, it's the wrong thing. For those who have a life apart from Christ, your life is all you have. But for those who have their hope anchored deep inside of Jesus, your life is the least of all you have. Take it. I don't care. I have a greater inheritance in him. You want to hurt this body? You know what? I get a resurrected one. And they, from what I understand from Scripture, pretty cool. I have a friend who you're, you're hopefully going to meet in the new year. Um, in the last few years, he started a mission or ministry Uh, to the people in Romania and Bulgaria, to the gypsy communities that live there. And if you don't know anything about these communities, they're uh, despised and relegated to the slums of the city and, and, and just outcasts in every facet of their people group and their culture. And he has, God's put a heart inside of him to see those people come know Jesus. People who uh, live in poverty, 
who are known in their areas for criminal activity, who have demonic uh, understanding seeped deep into their core because it's through uh, soothsaying and fortune-telling that many of them kind of have a trade. And in that community, he began a ministry, one, a safe house for women who uh, were trafficked in and often uh, the most vulnerable in those countries, but also uh, he began by simply sharing the gospel with a young woman who put her faith in Jesus, and after going home with her to tell her family, her father not only put his faith in Christ as well, but was baptized and became the pastor of what is now a church plant in that community. And his brother lives across the street. A brother whose home is marked with darkness. And now this pastor has been attacked and brutalized many times and just travels to and from the church where men with machetes and axes have tried to climb his walls and he phones and speaks to my friend saying, "But, but this is the cost of following Jesus and I won't quit. Love not their lives unto death. See, and you think we're inconvenienced. Church, I want us to get to a place where actually following Jesus costs you something. This, this, we're economic people. We're a capitalist society. The value of what you have is what you spent for it. And what did it cost you to follow Jesus? For most of us, nothing. And, and we create a value system in our hearts and in our minds that maybe it's not that important to me. I want you to get in the fight that you would understand that whatever the cost, it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. He is our king. He is our savior. Let me pray. And the music team's gonna come up. So Jesus, I pray anything from me, well, maybe that was poorly worded. Lord, that, that would fall to the wayside. I'm so thankful for this church, those who are with us online, those who are with us in the building, Lord that I ask you would unite us in a common purpose to be awake and awakened fully. Lord, there's something about COVID that I am thankful for because it's causing us to, to, to stir in our slumber that this doesn't feel right. This is not, uh, this is not comfortable anymore. And, and there's something inside of even me right now as I preach that I kind of want to just roll over and be like, ah, maybe it'll pass. But Jesus, cause us to wake up. The slumbering that has been the Western church, Lord, that, that, Lord, we would get back in the fight. And I pray over this church that we would be anchored in the hope of what you've done through your son, Jesus, and what that means for us, that you've given us an ability to stand. And in so standing that we would have eyes to see we're in a fight. And Jesus, following you ought to cost us something. And Lord, whatever the cost, it's worth it because you are far greater. So for those who don't know you, for those, Lord, who we're thinking of, who maybe we know and care about who don't know you, I pray you start warming their hearts to this truth. That, Lord, apart from you, our life is all we have, and so, yeah, we cling to it. But in you, it's the least of what we have, and so we don't worry about it. We serve a king whose kingdom will have no end, who has bounced the evil one, And Lord, we pray that he would have no stay in our hearts as well. That Lord, through the blood of the lamb, word of your testimony, and Lord, not loving our lives, even unto death, Lord, even unto discomfort, we would grow in deeper maturity and love of you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.